0: crusade I am gonna put a trigger warning on this episode Um, this episode may contain some mentions of war violence religious violence murder and suicide so please be aware of that and listen at your own discretion but first happier things so today is February 2nd. It is in bulk. It is Groundhog's Day. So I am going to check in with our witchy calendar for the day. And today we have a quote by Felipe Saint-Genault. And they remind us that, quote, a tarot reading is a synchronistic conversation that employs deliberately random use of archetypal artwork to open up possibilities, create self-awareness, and explore potentialities in the lives of the participants. Plus, it's a lot of fun. End quote. So, I think that is a great thing for us to remember. And today's Patreon shout-out goes to Blythe S. My good friend Blythe, many blessings to you and thank you so much for being an official patron of The Witchy Historian. Now, let's talk some French heresies. I'm going to give you all a fair warning this one might be a little bit beefier too. We're going all the way back to 1206 and the crusade that goes along with this heresy does not end until 1229 so we're covering a very wide span of history here this happens in the southern um, part of France and it's centered around the town of Albi thus the name Albigensian and this is centered around a group of Christians who created an offshoot sect of Cathar faith So their beliefs are very, very unique. There's some very big names that play into this. St. Dominic, St. Anthony, Philip II of France, King John of England, uh, Louis VIII of France, and, of course, we have the Cathars and the Albigensians. So the Albigensians are the main stars of the story, but the original Cathar group, that had left the Catholic Church, had already been relatively suppressed by this point. So when I use the term Cathars in this episode, I'm actually going to be talking about the Albigensians because they adhered to a lot of the same religious beliefs as the Cathars, but they took it a little bit farther, which is why the Pope, Pope Innocent III, took it so personally when they started proselytizing to everybody else in southern France. One of the terms that I will use a couple of times in this episode is called took the cross or taking of the cross. And this is a term that means that one accepted the position to wear a badge of the cross, of the Christian cross, as part of an official oath or vow particularly to do with the crusades so this was done almost exclusively as a commitment to commit your life to doing the crusades on behalf of the pope or whoever the religious leader was at the time because sometimes it wasn't the pope even though it might have been in his name so um we are going to go back to 1163 and do a really quick overview Of the council of tours because this is what kicks this whole thing off Uh, this applied to anyone accused of heresy in southern France it was targeted specifically to the Cathars and it was it changed the way that heresies were dealt with within the church this is really what kind of kicked off the use of crusading As a way of dealing with heresy and not just a way of kind of purifying the land as they claimed. So, the Albigensians, as I mentioned, they were a branch of the Cathars and they were fascinated by the dualistic principles of spiritual good and material evil. They were convinced that God, the Christian God, was spiritual only and that anything material had to be have been made by his material opposite who was inherently evil so anything physical was inherently evil and this combined some remnants of early jewish lore and early islamic doctrine as well and there was a very intense contempt for catholic clerics in this structure and cathars were particularly socio-political so there was a lot of those elements that happened and really tied into the actions that were taken during this crusade and I will explain this a little bit more as we go on the french crown was the primary prosecutors of this particular crusade But first, I'm going to explain the Cathars a little bit more in detail so y'all know kind of who we're dealing with and why this is a problem for the Catholic Church. Or I should say the early Christian Church, because at this point, the term Catholic was used, but it was not considered separate from other Christians. All Christians were considered Catholic at this point. All Catholics were Christian. So, the cult of the Cathars arose in the 11th century, but it was generally kept small after this Council of Tours that I just mentioned in 1163. What did that council accomplish? So, first of all, it opened at Pentecost in May of that year, and the council was composed of 17 cardinals, 24 bishops, and 414 abbots. The schism of the of the Popehood between Alexander III and Victor IV. So Alexander third had been named by the previous pope as the one that was to be taking the place his place. Um, and Victor IV was named by somebody else. In this council, that schism was settled. Actually, it was forced by Alexander and his buddies. Um, and here Alexander claimed. Popal writes, he had uh, gathered the support of different nobility and rulers of Rome, Portugal, Sicily, Northern Spain, France, and England, and the nation states as well who supported uh, Victor the Fourth. They didn't have centralized powers, so he wasn't able to get them together to fight back against Alexander's claim to the prophecy. So, the most unified powers won out in this case. So, after this very important matter was settled, other more trivial things were taken before the council, and this created the need for the council to to decree several canons that were directed specifically at the Cathars and their offshoots. So I'm going to mention two of them here. In canon number four of of these bulls, the council stated that anyone who followed the Cathars was a heretic, and anyone who offered them food, shelter, or trade was strictly forbidden from entering the church. Anyone caught fraternizing with the Cathars was imprisoned. They lost any property that they owned, and anyone suspected of this was subject to home raids and searches for secret meetings or hiding places and things like that. In canon number eight, clerics were forbidden from studying the laws of physical nature because of the beliefs of the Cathars. This was largely due to the Cathars' insistence that all materiality was from Satan, which led the council to determine that scientific study of material nature was contributing to heresy, so they banned it altogether from from the clerics. If you were doing this, you were not allowed to be a cleric anymore. So from this point on, anyone associated with the Cathars was considered a heretic and a threat to the stability of the church. This is also where the undertone of anti-education comes in to some of the extreme conservative movements of the Catholic church. To give y'all a little bit of a better idea of kind of exactly why the Cathars were so scary to the Catholic Church at this point. Again, just consider the Christian Church. Let's break down their main beliefs and kind of juxtapose them against the, the standard Christian belief. So the Cathars believed in two deities, God, who was all spirit, all good, and Satan, who was all material, all bad and of course christians believed in one deity god who created everything including satan but he was ultimately good which meant all things were inherently good but had fallen fallen into sin the cathars believed that jesus was an illusion that he was only spirit so he couldn't possibly be Present in the communion or the Eucharist. But the Christians believed, and there was some dissent about exactly how Jesus was present, but Jesus was divine to their belief. So, in He was divine in the physical form, so He was in some way a very real presence in the Eucharist. The Cathars condemned perceived clerical corruption and they thought that they saw a lot of clerical corruption especially among the pope and the higher ups of the catholic church hierarchy but the popes claimed to be and other clerics and and the christian church claimed to be a part of a line of divinely chosen priests who were blessed by the apostles themselves the Cathars believed that poverty and rejection of the physical was the best way to obtain holiness. Whereas the Christian church believed that God's presence was invoked in finery, that we should embellish all of our places of worship and all of the people who devote their life to Christ so that we can show our devotion to him. And finally, and here's one of our first trigger warnings, the Cathars had a primary goal to shed the physical body to become pure. They believed that suicide was commendable and their favorite form, their most sacred form of this was by starvation. Christians, however, their primary goal was to keep practicing according to tradition, conservative, this is toe the line, stay, stay in place. That was what Christians wanted to do. So you can see these two very different ideas. This is a kind of an offshoot of early Gnosticism. So the Cathars have this multiple deity idea, or at least two deity idea. And it's very, very opposite of how the Christians view the divinity of Jesus and their right to claim as far as the Pope goes and other priests and other clerics within their church. So clerics from Catharian towns and counties were removed from duty. Small scattered trials occurred from 1163 till about 1209, so there was some going on during the very beginning of this. However, in the county of Toulouse, near the city of Albi, where the Cathars first became established, the Albigensian heresy truly took root. This was the group most known for starving themselves to death in order to fully separate from the physical and become spiritually pure. So they were really, really embracing the most extreme ideals of this cult of worship. And the Catholic Church took that as a major threat. But in the meantime, all of this is happening. A new pope comes around. So Innocent III comes into the papacy, and he makes a vow to rid christendom of the Albigensian heretics once and for all this is one of his first inaugural vows and and part of the reason why he is given the popehood so he gets together with the king of france and he goes hey these Albigensians they're not showing you respect we should go put them in their place right and this is where things get really interesting so the Albigensians were actually made up of wealthy nobles and landowners, and they were aiming to get independence from the French king. So there's that socio-political undertone. So for this reason, this religious sect gathered a lot of wealthy and powerful members, maybe ones that weren't even following the rules of the religion, because they wanted this freedom, and this made this movement a huge threat to the king and to the pope because his religious authority was sanctioned and supported by political means. That's how he got his money. King Philip II of France and Innocent III tried to convince the Count of Toulouse to eliminate the heretics himself, but were, they let him know that they were prepared to attack him using France's military if he refused. Meanwhile, while the Count of Toulouse is mulling this over, Philip II is already in a conflict with King John of England. And yes, I'm talking about that King John, the Robin Hood King John, that guy. So Philip he doesn't want to declare another war, right? He doesn't want to get involved with this, but he knows that he has to because this is happening in his territory. Toulouse is part of France, and he knows that, hey, if he's trying to get independence for me, this is going to cause some problems. So Innocent and Philip, they crack this plan, but it stalls out at this point because the Count, Raymond VI, he doesn't do a whole lot until 1207 when he, he and at this point he is one of the most powerful Albigensians he is excommunicated from the church because he's refusing to act against the Cathars so innocent after after this excommunication innocent the sends out a delegation of preachers to try and convert the whole town. Of Toulouse. The whole thing goes really poorly. It results in Raymond expelling the papal delegation and the senior priest, whose name is Pierre de Castelnau. He's killed during this. One of the pope's own priests that he sent to go convert the Cathars is killed in this little skirmish presumably at the orders of Raymond. That's the accusation. However, Raymond attempts to reconcile with Rome, and he was accepted back into the church, only to be excommunic- excommunicated again in 1209, after he didn't fulfill his his part of the contract of reconciliation so there was a list of things that he was expected to do in order to be accepted back into the church the church accepted him back preemptively on these conditions and he just didn't finish them so with this innocent the third declares a crusade against the albigensian cathars claiming that eliminating all heresies would ensure the safety of France from the Muslims along the borders. So here now we're throwing back in this kind of religious warfare that is being stirred up between these two baby religions. This overlaps with the Fifth and the Sixth Crusades, which we're going to cover at a later time in a later episode, but we're going to focus on this right now. So at this point, not so innocent the third calls for religious war on some rich Frenchmen. Right, the king of France is basically in charge of the military, although he's not fighting, but he has a bunch of North French soldiers and he gets some English and Austrian volunteers, and they all get ready to go fight. But once again, Raymond the sixth repents. He's restored back to church membership and then commits to the crusade against his nephew, Raymond Roger. But when he pleads for remittance from the church, this guy, he's not as lucky as his uncle. His petition was denied and simultaneously another crusade army laid siege to Cassignan where several accused heretics were burned at the stake. So the next city captured by the crusaders was Servin and then Béziers. The entire town here uh, at Béziers was massacred. The whole city was burned to ashes. It was completely razed. The numbers reported as um, the amount killed back to the Pope puts the death toll near about 20,000. But historians generally think, based on archaeological evidence, that that number is greatly inflated, which is very common in the Crusades. But we're probably looking at at least 10,000 people. The people killed included Catholic clerics who were slaughtered at their altar. And this is one of the stories that follows this army as it goes through France and tries to take all of these cities. After this, most of the following towns, hearing these stories, they kind of just surrender as soon as the Crusaders show up. The Crusaders didn't meet any overt opposition again until they arrived at Carcassonne. Carcassonne. Sorry, I got something stuck in my throat for a second. (laughs) So within six days, the Crusaders had cut the city's water supply, and Raymond Rogers' attempt to negotiate resulted in his capture, which after several months ended his life, likely from dysentery. We're going to hear that a lot. At this point, Simon de Montfort was then appointed as the leader of the crusaders and no more notable battles occurred for several months due to the immediate surrender of several cities. In December 1209, four months after Carcassonne, the crusaders launched an assault on Les Tours and the Cathar army under Pierre Roger de Cabaret holds them off. However, in late June of 1210, the main well to the city gets destroyed and the citizens eventually surrender. So Simon and his soldiers, they try to treat the citizens with leniency, but in the end, 140 Cathar heretics are burned, most of them walking just straight into the flames before the executioners even had a chance to lead them forward. The Crusaders proceeded into a military stronghold in Termez, and after a, week a weeks-long siege, the Cathars abandoned the city and escaped. So instead of fighting head-on, they're just kind of holding them off, and then they're like, we're going to just bail, and they took off. In 1211, the Crusaders returned to Las Tours, and Pierre agrees to surrender again. Simon then laid siege to Lavar, but refreshment troops that were sent to relieve the Crusaders were ambushed on the road by Toulousean troops. Their result, this results in 6,000 Crusaders being killed. Allegedly, only one of them was allowed to live. A month later, the Cathar castle of Amory de Montreal was retaken by the crusaders, and he and his senior knights were hanged, and several hundred Cathars were burned. Casses was the next to fall, then Simon marched on Montferrand and Toulouse's brother, Baldwin. So Baldwin's at Montferrand, and now Simon's marching on him. Baldwin was quickly swayed by the crusader's cause and he abandoned the fort, joining in the subsequent siege of Toulouse. At this point, Baldwin takes up the cross. Simon laid a brief siege to the city but withdrew and then spent months encircling Toulouse, cutting off their trade and communication with the outside world. This chunk of land becomes a really, really key part of kind of how this crusade ends. Raymond de de Toulouse, at this point, he loses his income flow, and thus the vassals he relied on for labor and fighting became increasingly disloyal to him. So Raymond Toulouse and the Cathars turned to Peter II of Aragon, for help. Now, if you recognize the name Aragon, it's probably because you recognize the name Catherine Aragon, who married a very, very rememberable king of England, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so, Peter II of Aragon, Raymond goes to him for help. Peter had been crowned by the Pope in 1204, and his sister Eleanor had married Raymond VI, forging a strong alliance between Aragon and Elby. So this is where that connection comes in. So Peter II, who was a hero in the Crusades against the Moors, or Muslims as they were, as we call them now, in Spain, he convinces Innocent III to halt the crusade. He encourages him to launch a new crusade in the Middle East. So in 1213, Innocent III writes to Armand Armory and to Simon Montfort, rebuking their harsh treatment of Christians and then commanding the lands that they had sieged to be restored back to the people who had lived there before. Innocent III calls a council during which Peter pled for the absolution of Raymond Sixth, but Simon and the other council members absolutely refused to absolve Raymond VI of this because they'd been fighting this guy for months at this point. Peter II then rejects their verdict and allies with Toulouse and others to oppose Simon directly. Innocent Third had trusted Peter, and so he took this as a personal affront and in great shock. So, in retaliation, he reinstates the crusade. So, in April of 1213, Innocent issued the papal bull, Chium Maiora, which is officially calling for the Fifth Crusade, which includes the crusade on the Cathars. So, Peter and Simon. First met in battle at Moret in September of 1213. Despite significantly larger numbers and near-identical tactics, Peter was killed and his coalition just got super confused and they just scattered. So Raymond the Sixth of Toulouse and his son Raymond the Seventh were then forced to flee to England in exile. This is where King John comes in. He's avoiding the Crusades. He's trying to stay as far out of it as he can, but some of his soldiers had helped Marmont defend against the Crusaders. So he's also kind of like low-key getting involved here. In 1214, King Philip of France, so this is Philip II, won a decisive victory against the Albigensians at Beauvines, followed by Simon's successes at Dom, Montfort, and Bainec. In 1215, Toulouse was fully captured and gifted to Simon Montfort. So later that year... The fourth council of Latron named him the Count of Toulouse, revoking land ownership from Raymond the Sixth and giving all of his lands to Simon until Raymond the Seventh reaches majority. So he is basically his landholder until he reaches majority. But Toulouse is his. The council also doubles down on the Middle Eastern Crusade, so Simon resorts to hiring mercenaries to enforce his title and the rule of the Catholic religion in Toulouse and the surrounding area in France. Then comes May of 1216. So, both the Raymonds, the 6th and the 7th, They've been hiding out in England for a couple of years now. They return with a newly raised army that they gathered from surrounding towns that had been kind of like raised by the Crusaders. They show up with all these dudes that are just pissed off, right? And they besiege Beaucaire and successfully negotiate the capture of the castle there. So in July... Innocent III dies suddenly, and Philip II, who's already kind of cautious because he's still involved with King John over in England, he takes the lead on this crusade. He's still in the middle of this war with King John. He's got all this other stuff going on, so he's hesitant about pursuing this crusade at all, plus he's got family involved in it, so... He's not pushing it with the same ruthlessness that Simon had been using under Innocent's direction. So Montfort, Simon, he's scrambling to kind of put down uprisings and just kind of hold on to his land that he's now been gifted. And while he's putting out fires in Foix, which is over across the hills, Raymond comes back in, retakes Toulouse with no resistance in September of 1217. So after convincing the new pope, Pope Honorius III, to renew the crusade, Simon tries to siege Toulouse again in the spring of 1218. And then again in late June, after he's been battling with Toulouse for months and months, a random hurled stone from Toulouse's defense struck him on the battlefield and killed him gone so some accounts do say that the artillery that killed simon was being operated by the women and girls of the city but there's not a whole lot of primary source material from this period so we just kind of have to guess at that We're going to talk more in a few weeks about some more of the fighting ladies and how important women were in these types of situations, especially in the Crusades and as religious figures. Um, But for now, we're going to kind of set that aside. So after Simon dies, Pope Honorius III, he fully restores crusading indulgences to anyone fighting against the Cathars. So they're basically saying, hey, if you're crusading against the Cathars, you can pretty much do whatever you want in the name of the Pope. So if, if you haven't caught on to the fact that that is going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem. So King Philip is still refusing to take charge of this fully renewed crusade. He's kind of playing soft with it, which, hey, I'm down for that. But he sends his son, Prince Louis, to go lead an expedition for this crusade. Joined by the army of the late Simon's son, Armory Montfort, Louis lays siege to Marmont, massacring all of its occupants except for the commander and his knights, which to me doesn't make any sense. Like, if you're going to go in and take a city, why are you leaving the people who are going to fight you? Hardest alive. Not that I advocate for any of this, but just saying. So they leave the commander and his knights, everyone else is gone. This joint force between Armory Montfort and Louis, Prince Louis, they then march on Toulouse again. But after six weeks sieging toulouse they are forced to retreat so after this louis goes back to france he goes back to the north of france he's like i'm done i need to relax omri couldn't hold his lands by himself so the cathars retake most of it the cathars led by raymond the sixth and his son they take back town after town and they're just pushing the Catholics out as they go. They're just driving them out. Raymond VI passes away in 1222, and Raymond Seventh was obviously his successor. So Philip II dies in July of 1223, and Prince Louis now becomes King Louis VIII. So then we have 1224 comes along. Amory Montfort. He abandons Carcassonne. Raymond the Seventh reclaims it. Amory cedes all of his remaining landholdings to King Louis the Eighth. And this is presumably to repay his father's war debt to the French crown. So obviously Simon is spearheading this campaign, but at the time, King Philip II was the one that was funding it he was the king he was the guy with the money so this was all done in the name of the pope but it was actually done with the king's money and with simon leading these military charges so simon probably owed the king a lot of money and therefore at this point they're thinking the crusade is probably over omri's like listen i can't pay you i'm just gonna give you all of my land holdings. So Louis takes them, and they call it square. So, November of 1225, the Council of Borges is called for the purpose of resolving this Cathar heresy kind of once and for all, right? They keep saying, we're going to do this once and for all. They never do. Raymond the Seventh, he is then excommunicated from the church. A new annual tax is instated for the purpose of supporting the Crusades specifically against the Albigensians. So it's called the Albigensian Tenth, and it's a 10% tax that is instituted on over a 1,000 clerics and churchmen that they have to pay a tenth of their annual income to the Pope in order to fund these crusades. So, Louis VIII. He is now in charge. He led the renewed crusade. He takes the cross, committing to the crusade in January of 1226. He assembles one of the largest crusading armies against the Cathars, starting from Borges and capturing Béziers, Carcassonne, Beaucaire, and Marseille with ease no resistance. At Avignon, they're finally met with some resistance when the German emperor that's in place there, ruling the city, refuses to open the gate. He's just like, nope, not doing it. So Louis VIII, instead of storming the castle, all of these things, he settles in for a slow, long siege and finally launches a frontal assault a few, about six weeks later or so, but it's beaten back like just fiercely. There is no way they are getting into this city. So a month later, the town finally agrees. They're like, listen, we're gonna give you six thousand marks and we're gonna blow up our walls. Just to show that we're surrendering to you. Can you leave us alone after that? So they agree. That's what they do. They pay them 6,000 marks to get them to go on their way. They get, their, get rid of their walls. They knock them all down. And then Louis and his army march on. However, Louis VIII then dies the following November in Paris of dysentery. And he has succeeded by Louis the Ninth, who is the child king, if you know anything about the French monarchy. So, the Queen Regent the, is left in charge, Blanche of Castile, and she sends Humbert the Fifth de, de Beaujeu or of Beaujeu in Louis's place to hold that place because obviously her child is not going to go fight. So the next city to fall in the Crusades here was Levised in 1227, followed by Varay in 1228, before they again came back to siege Toulouse. They just won't let the city go, right? So Raymond VII, by this point, he had married his daughter Joan off to Louis's brother, Alphonse of Poitou, where the inheritance of Toulouse would eventually revert back to Louis the Ninth. It's a little bit complicated, but it would revert back to Louis the Ninth after um, Joan and Alphonse and their children die. So Raymond agrees to and signs the Treaty of Paris at Mont in April of 1229. So that's the official end of the crusade. A lot, right? Battle after battle and back and forth, but there's a lot of socio-political stuff going on in the background. So, in 1234, now this isn't the actual crusade, but Pope Gregory IX, he shows up At this point, he establishes an inquisition in which the remaining Albigensians and others like them are targeted. This involved forcible conversion and violent punishment for those who did not comply, but we are going to cover that in a later episode in greater detail, so I'm not going to go into that here. The Albigensian Crusades were full of violence and cruelty, and they were misaligned with the known ideas of reform and the plans of Pope Innocent III. He taught conversion of heretics by confession, by clerical and laity reform, and pastoral teachings. Some historians still hold that the violence enacted during this crusade was solely the responsibility of the petty rulers, nobility, and local bishops who didn't hold to Innocent's ideals. However, I think that we should be mindful that Innocent's knowledge of the violence being enacted in his name was sufficient for him to be considered at best complacent and likely complicit in these tragedies. The immediate consequences of the Albigensian crusade was that the papacy realized the need to regulate with greater care the persecution of heresy. The shortage of volunteers to the Middle East for the Fifth and Sixth Crusades really impacted the success of the church in those campaigns. But the focus of the Al- on, on, on the Albigensians really increased the power and centralization of the French monarchy, which increased papal de- dependency on the French crown. So, this becomes a really important theme as we continue on through the rest of the Crusades. Another unique feature of this Crusade were the countless Troubadour songs that survived this. So there's quite a catalog of these. Some of the better known Troubadour knights are Raymond de Miraval, the Troubadour team Tomier and Pauly... Listen, I can read French. I'm not very good at pronouncing it. (laughs) But it's spelled P-A-L-A-I-C-I. And one of the epics about this time period is called Conzo de la Cruzada or Song of the Albigensian Crusade. This era also marks the beginning of the decline of the Troubadour tradition. So that's the story of the Albigensian Crusades. I hope you all really enjoyed this today. And if you would like to get in touch with me, you can go ahead and send me an email at the at gmail.com. You can find me and follow me on Facebook at facebook.com the witchy historian, on Instagram at witchyhistorian, historian, and on TikTok at the Witchy Historian. And if you would like to get a Patreon shout-out on the show like Blythe did today, go ahead and head on over to patreon.com slash thewitchyhistorian, and you can go ahead and choose which tier of support you would like from three different levels that I have available for you here. Thank you again so much for listening today, and I will see you all in two weeks for our next Witchy-sode, where I will be talking about what makes a witch. Enjoy your week! Have a great evening. Goodbye!